there's a very clear lineage. We should definitely get back to KPFA yeah. star from the beginning. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. there's definitely a clear lineage from uh, Lewis Hill, the uh, the real mm-hmm. founder of KPFA, and his vision yep. for the radio station. There's a clear lineage from him to like Amber Frost uh, on Chapo saying like we're doing propaganda, like we're creating the revolution, like with our stupid show. You know, there's yeah. a very direct yeah. line from what he envisioned uh, to the reality that we live in now, where people think that they're doing they're like doing Marxist Leninist practice uh, through their podcast uh, that is going to create a revolution. And a lot of the time, in fact. There's sus aspects of that uh, that well you can yes. draw in this history. These ideas well, uh, aren't <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, free of their uh, dark side. Uh, well, yeah. here that's the thing. That's really what we're going to get into today. Is the like how did KPFA become the alternative, and what what did that entail, and who helped them get there, and what kind of compromises did they have to make? in their formative decades to become that like uh, alternative hegemon. And I think as we'll find out, some pretty yikes compromises had to be made that I think uh, that ended up being inextricable from the rise of alternative media itself. And I think perhaps provides a little more perspective and a guide into like how we should look at things like alternative media in general and perhaps exercises a little bit more uh, revolutionary skepticism about some of these things. Yes. And in fact, I think there definitely were compromises and there were breaks within the organization and rifts and fractionalism within it. But also there were some things from the very beginning, from the inception that are Mm -hmm. a bit off about this project, because one of the big things, I think, is that when you hear Pacifica Radio, you might think, oh, it's called Pacifica because it's started in California and there's the Pacific Ocean. But that's mm-hmm. not why it's called that. It's called no. that because it had an ideological commitment from the very beginning to pacifism, which yes. like doesn't sound weird, really. It sounds yeah. good. Like everyone loves peace, you know. I'm from the religion of peace. Uh, mm-hmm. as yeah, we all sure. Know, uh, that's what Islam is—the religion of peace. And yeah. uh, but you know, everyone likes the idea of peace. Uh, F, you know, FDR even said. Uh, that all Americans are pacifists, uh, as uh, mm-hmm. someone quoted in one of the and books. And to be uh, fair, every, almost yeah. everybody from like Nazis to members of the common turn in, well, not like the Nazis themselves, but people who maybe were German sympathizers or Nazi sympathizers in the U.S., everyone across the American political spectrum, from like liberals to conservatives to Marxists to, uh, to pacifists to fascists, they all kind of had a kind of non-interventionist pacifist orientation or at least claim to on the surface and uh it was described no in this book that, uh, that we're gonna go it was like a, it was, it was like, yeah it, no well it was they, this war unless yeah. it's necessary in theory of course you know it's of course, oh, every war yeah. is like is necessary in theory you know obviously but, they're not uh, true but you know but the, if you're this a pacifist is weird. in world war ii there <laughs> are sometimes people who like there's uh, ideological uh, adjacencies to that, uh, which are yes. uh, obvious, perhaps, if you think about it for yes. a second. You know, some people maybe are just naive yeah. and they just want to, uh, you know, be peaceful or they're Quakers or something. 
And then there's people who have other motives for wanting to be uh, pacifists in World War II as Americans. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, and, people that didn't yeah. want us to wage war against the Nazis, and basically. And destroy the best um, of our race in a pointless conflict. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This um, is the, uh, the the kind of, you know, Charles Coughlin, America First, uh, the Silver Shirts, like that whole kind of a network of people. But basically, yeah, it, just to, to ground this, um, yeah, in the 1930s, a lot of people were pacifists but um as the the book we're going to draw from um which is by matthew lazar lazar i think is his name um mm-hmm. which was what was the name of it it was uh the rise of pacifica radio yeah it's the rise of pacifica i think uh it was in the, from the 90s yeah and he wrote another like short uh, article, yeah like, pacifica yeah yeah, Pacifica yeah. Ra- Radio, The Rise of an Alternative Network um, mm-hmm. that was published yeah. in 1999. Pretty good resource for, and a good dissection of, like, what these competing kind of, like, uh, the, the kind of ideological motivations behind the beginning of it and, like, how that really kind of got interestingly twisted around. But also, you're right, there were some seeds of weirdness um, in, you know, the very beginning. And w- uh, Lazar says that, you know, while pacifism was widely embraced by almost everybody in the 30s, by the time World War II started happening and the Nazis invaded Poland and then Western Europe, and then particularly when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, that was a big moment where all of the socialists and communists basically abruptly abandoned pacifism, which is something that Lewis Hill, the founder of KPFA, would like never forgive them for. <laughs> which is kind of like funny it's just like yeah like, like it was just like the ultimate betrayal to him that you know these marxists who he was already leery of um would you know they weren't really committed to pacifism because like the most vicious genocidal death machine in history was like invading the only socialist country and they wanted to resist that so i guess that made them evil and authoritarian but then you know he found himself like kind of a a bit of a loner at that point because especially after pearl harbor because then all the liberals the conservatives even a lot of right-wing folks basically got on board with the war effort and it became almost like the constituency absolutely like fizzled out by you know 1942 and um and so you know, we're, we're going to go through the history here, but yeah. I think before we go any further, it's very important to note who Lewis Hill was and where he came from, yeah. because it's kind of an a recurring theme fact, throughout KPFA. An interesting fact, just to give you a picture, like from before we move on from this, before, uh, from Matthew Lazar's book, uh, he writes that uh, pacifists like including Lewis Hill uh, often regarded stories about Nazi atrocities as anti-German propaganda. Uh, similar to false stories circulated during the First World War. So they were like, that's all from Adrian Zenz. You know, they were uh, uh-huh, like, all that uh-huh. stuff. About, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah, in speeches, Must. Not the best uh, take in a- retrospect. A.J. Must uh, was, he was the most prominent American pacifist. Uh, he reminded his audience that European powers had failed to negotiate a just peace after the First World War and that Hitler's racism was hardly unique since England and France also justified their imperial conquest with racist ideology. That is true. Uh, another total yeah. war would exhaust Europe and elevate the United States, also a racially segregated society, to imperial superpower status. Uh, well, you know, not wrong, but <laughs> still also not like wrong, still, uh, a on. little bit cynically deployed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Finch, yeah, exactly. Hill and others thought that a war with Germany would simply set the stage for a much larger conflict, a showdown with the Soviet Union. We were very clear on this <sighs> point. Uh, it was a way by which we would be led into war against the communists. 
They also feared that during the war, civil liberties would be suspended as they had been during World War I. Uh, Moss called uh, for pacifists yeah. to press for a negotiated settlement between Germany and the Allies. He used diplomacy to drive a wedge between Hitler and the German people. There is no cheap and easy way out, he argued, but the assumption that German people are a special breed of semi-humans who do not react to love and hate, good and evil, as do other men, is patently without foundation. It's funny because, <laughs> like, you, like, uh, it's interesting Wait, like, uh, some of the takes about Stalinoids that would... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of Dwight McDonald and, like, yeah. the guy, his friend uh, but, having to tell yeah, him, like, clearly you don't see... Yeah communists as human beings anymore and you just think we should exterminate uh, them right yeah uh dwight mcdonald not gonna come out if, if there's any mass cult and mid cult fans out there which i used to be kind of a fan of that book but now just reading through this i was like i'm gonna burn his book like fuck this guy like he's such a fucking <laughs> asshole uh the whole time just like the stalinoids like ugh. anyways um so okay but who was lewis hill how did this guy end up like being such an eclectic idealist that he thought that like the allies and the nazis could just break the sword. Interesting. He literally wonder, thought that they hmm. should break the sword yeah. and like use yeah. mind that, war to fight the real enemy, which is war. Yeah. And yeah. The pro. Really I think he literally said so. I, I I highlighted something that Hill said in this book that sounded exactly like mind war. That was I think it was Hill that said it. There was something around the lines of like we need to understand that like the enemy in war is not like the opponent. The enemy is like the the problem or something we just need to like attack the problem you know instead yeah, of attacking uh, each other it's like sounds like very much like mind war which is not totally unrelated to all this uh so right yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, i don't know uh, what this quote uh is from but uh it does associate it with lewis hill it's uh like uh both uh in the months following japanese attack on pearl harbor both men went to co camps conscientious objector camps out of strong convictions about the nature of violence they agree with Must, reflecting the teachings of Gandhi that, so I guess uh, A.J. Must uh, said this, your real enemy mm. is not a person, someone whom you can shoot and thus solve your problem, but learn behaviors that could be unlearned through example. So, yeah. Lou's attitude mm. was that modern war so far exceeds all talk about traditional honor and right and wrong that it becomes ridiculous to even deal with it in those terms, Finch later said. Although Hill mm -hmm. could have easily gotten an F4 status, medical exemption, he registered as a conscientious objector and went to Colville. Uh, mm -hmm. which was yeah, yeah. conscientious objector yeah. camp so yes yeah and that, uh, so that's, that's and that, that's where the germ of this idea yeah. would start but 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 before we go any further again who is lewis hill how did this weirdo get so wrapped up in like the idea of pacifism you know what what really drew him you know is this something maybe in his background or something well let's look into his background and you know, I mean, I think this is interesting in light of what uh, some, you know, some some people on Twitter uh, have said over the years about like certain podcasters and maybe they have certain, you know, backgrounds that are a little more elite connected despite their Marxist politics and all that stuff. So Lewis Hill had been born on May 1st. That's very ironic. On May Day, 1919, in Kansas City, Missouri, to a pair of, quote, empire builders, as his wife, Joey Cole Hill, once put it. His father, Johnson D. Hill, a lawyer, had moved from Missouri to Tulsa in the Oklahoma Territory. While visiting the city of Bartlesville, he met and married Laura Phillips. Laura's older brother, Frank Phillips, was soon to become the living symbol of the self-made Southwest oil millionaire, a one-time singing barber who married into a prosperous Iowa banking 
banking family, Frank Phillips had taken advantage of the breakup of the Oklahoma Indian Territory to obtain fields rich with oil. Uh, so, yeah, talk about Reed Settlers. Um, <laughs> by the late 1920s, the Phillips Petroleum Company, with its chain of Phillips 66 gas stations along legendary Route 66, had become a byword for Jazz Age prosperity. Johnson Hill, uh, Lewis's father, also went into the oil business, and later he bought an insurance company. Young Lewis grew up in an atmosphere of sudden wealth. He spent time at his uncle's majestic ranch in Bartles Bartlesville, and this is interesting, where Frank Phillips entertained the likes of Hollywood cowboy Tom Mix, Herbert Hoover, and evangelist Amy Semple McPherson. The famous mansion was noted for its halls filled with medieval sculpture and Frank Phillips' gigantic study. In a letter to a friend, Lewis once described his home life as combining, quote, corporate wealth, romantic ladies, and unlimited scotch and soda. Uh, so I just want to uh, add the note in there. Tom Mix, uh, that was a guy who popped up a lot in McGowan's Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon book. I want to say that he was the one that owned the log cabin that Frank Zappa moved into in the 60s. Hmm. Yeah, so um, I mean, I'll double check that <laughs> later. But definitely because you don't forget a weird name like Tom Mix. Uh, and I guess, you know, he was one of the yeah. sus lords of like the early like the Hollywood, you know, golden years and whatever. But anyways, to the young Lewis Hill, he encountered pacifism. And then I guess he believed that these ideas proved that one did not need a socio-scientific plan like Marxism or liberalism to make a better world. One simply needed to believe and act accordingly. Quote, the mere conception that reality and present being consist in paradox, Hill wrote, and the dialectical proof that the only possible movement through paradox is a leap are like a clean broom. All manner of positivist, phenomenalist, humanist rubbish is swept, uh, swept out and the way is empty. Hill drew from uh, this is when he was at Stanford, I think, reading a lot of Kierkegaard, who he's obsessed with. Mm -hmm. he um, Kierkegaard, yeah. And, of course, he, he went, where else? Stanford University. And he drew from his studies at Stanford a deeply optimistic belief in the power of the individual to reconstruct human relations. The foundation for this view, and later for his vision of listener-supported radio, was Kierkegaard's contention that one's relationship with others, like one's relationship to God, was based on a willfully constructed self based on faith. Thus, in a sense, one created human reality as one created God. After reading Martin Buber's I and Thou, Hill wrote to Finch, uh, I it was his friend he met in the CO camp. The real crux of the matter is, as Kierkegaard saw it, that an implacable paradox arises in the absolute existence of thou through the cognitive act of I. The paradox can only be lived subjectively. Uh, and he said sometimes this ideology, which placed so much primacy on, quote, inward nature, made Hill's friends nervous. A, quote, philosophy for desperados, Finch once said of Hill's interpretation of Kierkegaard. And, you know, he also, oh, funny quote here. Many things, fantastic things, become possible through the definite determination to remain definite, Hill concluded. Quote, Zionism and the Gandhian movement have always had this specificity. He also, hey, somebody else named, yeah, named, yeah awesome. right? Thank uh, you. Yeah, very, very uh, cool. Uh, he for access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.